Welcome back to Caldi's Corner. Today we're reading Reading 5 from World War Z by Max Brooks. Reading 5. Kajir, Olkan Island, Lake Baikal, the Holy Russian Empire. The room is bare, except for a table, two chairs, and a large wall mirror, which is almost sure to be one-way glass. I sit across from my subject, writing on the pad of paper provided for me. My transcriber has been forbidden for security reasons. Maria Zuganova's face is worn. Her hair is graying. Her body strains the seams of the fraying uniform she insists on wearing for this interview. Technically, we are alone, although I sense watching eyes behind the room's one-way glass. We didn't know that there was a great panic. We were completely isolated about a month before it began, about the same time as that American newswoman broke the story. Our camp was placed on indefinite communication blackout. All the televisions were removed from the barracks, all the personal radios and cell phones too. I had one of those cheap disposable types with five prepaid minutes. It was all my parents could afford. I was supposed to call, use it to call them on my birthday, my first birthday away from home. We were stationed in Nososentia, Alenia, one of our wild southern republics. Our official duty was peacekeeping, preventing ethnic strife between the Osentia and English minorities. Our rotation was up about the same time they cut us off from the world. A matter of state security, they called it. Who were they? Everyone. Our officers, the military police, even a plain-clothed civilian who just seemed to appear one day out of nowhere. He was a mean little bastard with a thin rat face. That's what we called him, rat face. Did you ever try to find out who he was? What, me personally? Never. Neither did anyone else. Oh, we griped. Soldiers always gripe. But there also wasn't time for any serious complaints. Right after the blackout was put into effect, we were placed on full combat alert. Up until then, it had been easy duty, lazy monotonous, only broken by occasional mountain stroll. Now, we were in these mountains for days at a time with full battle dress and ammo. We were in every village, every house. We questioned every peasant and traveler and, I don't know, goat that crossed our path. Question them. For what? I don't know. Is everyone in your family present? Has anyone gone missing? Has anyone been attacked by a rabid animal or man? That was the part that confused me the most. Rabid? I understood the animal part, but man? There were a lot of physical inspections, too, stripping these people to their bare skin while the medic searched every inch of their bodies for... something. We weren't told what. It didn't make sense. Nothing did. We once found a whole cache of weapons. 74s, a few older 47s, plenty of ammo. Probably bought from some corrupt opportunist right in our battalion. We didn't know who the weapons belonged to. Drug runners or local gangsters, maybe even those supposed reprisal squads that were the reason for our deployment in the first place. And what did we do? We let it all. That little civilian, Ratface, he had a private meeting with some of the village elders. I don't know what was discussed, but I can tell you they looked scared, half to death, crossing themselves, praying silently. 
we didn't understand. We were confused, angry. We didn't understand what the hell we were doing out there. We had this one old veteran in our platoon, Baburin. He'd fought in Afghanistan and twice in Chechnya. It was rumored that during Yeltsin's crackdown, his BMP was the first to fire on Duma. We used to like to listen to his stories. He was always good-natured, always drunk. When he thought he could get away with it. <laughs> he changed after the incident with the weapons. He stopped smiling. There were no more stories. I don't think he ever touched a drop after that. And when he spoke to you, which was Vera, the only thing he ever said was, this isn't good. Something's going to happen. Whenever I tried to ask him about it, he would just shrug and walk away. Morale was pretty low after that. People were tense, suspicious. Ratface was always there, in the shadows, listening, watching, whispering into the ears of our officers. He was with us the day we swept the little no-name town, this primitive hamlet that would look like the edge of the world. We'd executed our standard searches and interrogations. We were just about to pack it in. Suddenly, this child, this little girl, came running down the only road in town. She was crying, obviously terrified. She was chattering to her parents. I wish I could have taken the time to learn the language. Then pointing across the field, there was a tiny figure, another little girl staggering across the mud toward us. Lieutenant Tikhonov raised his binoculars, and I watched his face lose its color. Ratface came up next to him and gave a look through his own glasses, then whispered something in the lieutenant's ear. Petrenko, platoon sharpshooter, was ordered to raise his weapons and center the girl in his sights. He did. Do you have her? I have her? Shoot. That's how it went, I think. I remember there was a pause. Petrenko looked up at the lieutenant and asked him to repeat the order. You heard me, he said angrily. I was farther away than Petrenko, and even I'd heard him. I said, eliminate the target, now. I could see the tip of his rifle was shaking. He was a skinny little runt, not the bravest or the strongest, but suddenly he lowered his weapon and said he wouldn't do it. Just like that, no, sir. It felt like the sun froze in the sky. No one knew what to do, especially Lieutenant Tekonov. Everyone was looking at one another, and then we were all looking out at the field. Ratface was walking out there slowly, almost casually. The little girl was now close enough so we could see her face. Her eyes were wide, locked on Ratface. Her arms were raised, and I could just make out this high-pitched, rasping moan. He met her halfway across the field. It was over before most of us realized what had happened. In one smooth motion, Ratface pulled a pistol from underneath his coat, shot her right between the ice, and turned around and sauntered back toward us. A woman, probably the little girl's mother, exploded into sobs. She fell to her knees, spitting and cursing at us. Ratface didn't even seem to care, or even notice. He just whispered something to Lieutenant Tikhonov, then remounted the BMP as if he were hailing a Moscow taxicab. That night, lying awake in my bunk, I tried not to think about what had happened. I tried not to think about the fact that the MPs had taken Petrenko away, or that our weapons had been locked in the armory. I knew I should have felt bad for the child, angry, even vengeful toward Ratface, and maybe even a little bit guilty, because 
I didn't lift a finger to stop it. I knew those were the kind of emotions I should have been feeling. At that point, the only thing I could feel was fear. I kept thinking about what Buvurin had said, that something bad was going to happen. I just wanted to go home, see my parents. What if there'd been some horrible terrorist attack? What if it was war? My family lived in Bikin, almost within sight of the Chinese border. I needed to speak to them, to make sure they were okay. I worried so much that when I started throwing up so much so that they checked me into the infirmary. That's why I missed the patrol that day. That's why I was still in bed rest when they came back the following afternoon. I was in my bunk, rereading an outdated copy of Schmidtestad. I heard the commotion, vehicle engines, voices. A crowd was already assembled on the parade ground. I pushed my way through and saw Arkady standing in the center of the mob. Arkady was the heaven machine gunner for my squad, a big bear of a man. We were friends because he kept the other men away from me, if you understand what I mean. He said, he said I reminded him of his sister. I liked him. There was someone crawling at his feet. It looked like an old woman, but there was a burlap hood over her head and a chain leash wrapped around her neck. Her dress was torn and her skin of her legs had been scraped clean off. There was no blood, just this black pus. Arkady was well into a loud, angry speech. No more lies, no more orders to shoot civilians on sight. And that's why I put the little zhlopolets down. I looked for Lieutenant Tikhonov, but I couldn't see him anywhere. I got a ball of ice in my stomach. Because I wanted you all to see. Arkady lifted the chain, pulling the old babushka up by her throat. He grabbed the hood and ripped it off. Her face was gray, just like the rest of her. Her eyes were wide and fierce. She snarled like a wolf and tried to grab Arkady. He wrapped one powerful hand around her neck holding her at arm's length. I want you all to see why we are here. He grabbed the knife from his belt and plunged it into the woman's heart. I gasped. We all did. It was buried up to the hilt, and she continued to squirm and growl. You see? He shouted, stabbing her several more times. You see, this is what they're not telling us. This is what they have us breaking our backs to find. You could see heads start to nod, a few grunts of agreement. Arkady continued, what if these things are everywhere? What if they're back home with our families right now? He was trying to make eye contact with as many of us as possible. He wasn't paying enough attention to the old woman. His grip loosened. She pulled free and bit him on the hand. Arkady roared, his face caved in the old woman's face. She fell to his feet, writhing and gurgling that black goo. He finished the job with his boot. We all heard her skull crack. Blood was trickling down the gouge in Arkady's fist. He shook it at the sky, screaming as the veins in his neck began to bulge. We want to go home, he bellowed. We want to protect our families. Others in the crowd began to pick it up. Yes, we want to protect our families. This is free country. This is a democracy. You cannot keep us in prison. I was shouting too. Blood was trickling down the gouge in Arkady's fist. He shook it at the sky, screaming as the veins in his neck began to bulge. We want to go home, he bellowed. We want to protect our families. Others in the crowd began to pick it up. 
Yes, we want to protect our families. This is free country. This is a democracy. You can't keep us in prison. I was shouting too, chanting with the rest. That old woman, the creature that could take a knife in the heart without dying. What if they were back home? What if they were threatening our loved ones? My parents, all the fear, the doubt, every single tangled negative emotion offused into rage. We want to go home. We want to go home. Chanting, chanting, and then... A round cracked past my ear, and Arcadis left eye imploded. I don't remember running or inhaling tear gas. I don't remember when the Spetsnaz commandos appeared, but suddenly they were all around us, beating us down, shackling us together, one of them stepping on my chest so hard I thought I was going to die right then and there. Was that the decimation? No, that was the beginning. We weren't the first army unit to rebel. It had actually started about the time the MPs first closed down the base. About the time we staged our little demonstration. The government had decided how to restore order. She straightens her uniform, composes herself before speaking. To decimate. I used to think it wouldn't end to wipe out, cause horrible damage, destroy. It actually means to kill by a percentage of ten. One out of every ten must die. And that's exactly what they did to us. The Spetsnaz had us assembled on the parade ground, full address, uniform, no less. Our new commanding officer gave a speech about duty and responsibility, about our sworn oath to protect the motherland, and how we had betrayed that oath with our selfish treachery and individual cowardice. I'd never heard words like that before. Duty? Responsibility? Russia? My Russia? Was nothing but an apolitical mess. We lived in chaos and corruption. We were just trying to get through the day. Even the army was no bastion of patriotism. It was a place to learn a trade, get food and a bed, and maybe even a little money to send home when the government decided it was convenient to pay its soldiers. Oath to the motherland? Oath to protect the motherland? <laughs> Those weren't the words of my generation. That was what you'd hear from old, great, patriotic war veterans. The kind of broken, demented geezers who used to besiege Red Square with their tattered Soviet banners and their rows and rows of medals pinned to their faded, moth-eaten uniforms. Duty to the motherland was a joke. But I wasn't laughing. I knew the executions were coming. The armed men surrounding us, the men in the guard towers. I was ready. Every muscle in my body was tensing for the shot. And then I heard those words. You spoiled children. <laughs> you spoiled children think democracy is God-given right. You expect it. You demand it. Well, now, you're going to get your chance to practice it. His exact words stamped behind my eyelids for the rest of my life. What did he mean? We would be the ones to decide who would be punished. Broken up into groups of ten, we would have to decide on which one of us was going to be executed. And then, we, the soldiers, we would be the ones to personally murder our friends. They rode these little pushcarts past us, 
I can still hear their creaking wheels. They were full of stones, about the size of your hand, sharp and heavy. Some cried out, pleaded with us, begged like children. Some, like Baburin, simply knelt there silently on his knees, staring right into my face as I brought the rock down into his. She sighs softly, glancing over her shoulder at the one-way glass. Brilliance. Sheer effing brilliance. Conventional executions might have reinforced discipline, might have restored order from top down. But by making us all accomplices, they held us together, not just by fear, but by guilt as well. We could have said no, could have refused and been shot ourselves, but we didn't. We went right along with it. We all made a conscious choice, and because that choice carried such a high price, I don't think anyone ever wanted to make another one again. We relinquished our freedom that day, and we were more than happy to see it go. From that moment on, we lived in true freedom. The freedom to point to someone else and say, they told me to do it. It's their fault, not mine. The freedom, God help us to say, I was only following orders. Bridgetown Barbados, West Indies Federation. Trevor's Bar personifies the Wild West Indies, or more specifically, each island's special economic zone. This is not a place most people would associate with the order and tranquility of post-war Caribbean life. It is not meant to be. Fenced off from the rest of the island and catering to a culture of chaotic violence and debauchery, the special economic zones are engineered specifically to separate off-islanders from their money. My discomfort seems to please T. Sean Collins. The giant Texan slides a shot of Kill Devil rum in my direction, then swings his massive boot-clad feet onto the table. They haven't come up with a name for what I used to do. Not a real one, not yet. Independent contractor sounds like I should be laying drywall and smearing plaster. Private security sounds like some dumbass mall guard. Mercenary's the closest, I guess. But at the same time, about as far from the real me as you could have gotten. Mercenary sounds like some crazed out noun that all tats and handle stash humping in some third world cesspool because he can't hack it back in the real world. That wasn't me at all. 
Yeah, I was vet, and yeah, I used my training for cash. Funny thing about the Army, they always promise to teach you marketable skills, but they never mention that by far. There's nothing more marketable than knowing how to kill some people while keeping others from being killed. Maybe I was a mercenary. <laughs> you never know what to look at me. I was clean cut, nice car, nice house. Even a housekeeper came in once a week. I had plenty of friends, marriage prospects, and my handicap at the country club was almost as good as the pros. Most importantly, I worked for a company no different from any other before the war. There was no cloak and dagger, no back rooms and midnight envelopes. I had vacation days and sick days, full medical and a sweet dental package. I paid my taxes, too much, paid into my IRA. I could have worked overseas. Lord knows there was plenty of demand. But after seeing what my buddies went through with the last brash fire, I said, screw it. Let me guard some fat CEO or worthless dumb celebrity. That's where I found myself when the panic hit. You don't mind if I don't mention names, okay? Some of these people are still alive or... Their states are still active, and, uh, can you believe they're still threatening to sue after all that's gone down? Okay, so I can't name names or places, but, uh, figure it's an island. A big island. A long island, right next to Manhattan. Can't sue me for that, right? My client, I'm not sure what he really did. Something in entertainment or high finance beats me. I think he might have even been one of the senior shareholders in my firm. Whatever. He had bucks. Lived in this amazing pad by the beach. Our client liked to know people who were known by all. His plan was to provide safety for those who could raise his image during and after the war, playing Moses to the scared and famous. And you know what? They fell for it. The actors and singers and rappers and pro athletes and just the professional faces, like the ones you see on talk shows or reality shows or even that little rich, spoiled, tired-looking whore who was famous for just being a... Rich, spoiled, tired-looking whore. There was that record mogul guy with those big old diamond earrings. He had this tricked-out AK with a grenade launcher. Loved to talk about how it was an exact replica of the one from Scarface. I didn't have the heart to tell him that Senior Montana had used a 16A1. There was a political comedy guy. You know, the one with the show? He was snorting blow between the airbags of this teeny tie stripper while spewing about how what was happening wasn't just about the living versus the dead. It would send shockwaves through every facet of our society. So social, economic, political, even environmental. He said that subconsciously everyone already knew the truth during the Great Denial, and that's why they wigged out so hard when the story was finally broken. It all actually kind of made sense, until he started spewing about high-fructose corn syrup and the feminization of America. Crazy, I know. But you kind of expected those people to be there. I mean, at least I did. What I didn't expect was all their people. Every one of them, no matter who they were or what they did, had to have at least, I don't know, how many stylists and publicists and personal assistants. Some of them, I think, were pretty cool just doing it for the money. Or because they figured they'd be safe there. Young people just trying to get a leg up. Can't fault them for that. Some of the others, though, real pricks all high on the smell of their own piss just rude and pishy and ordering everything everybody else around one guy sticks out in my mind only because he wore this baseball cap that read get it done i think he was the chief handler of that fat f who won that talent show that guy must have had 14 people around him i remember thinking at first it would be impossible to take care of all these people but after my initial tour of the premises i realized our boss had planned for everything He'd transformed his home into a survivalist wet dream. He'd had enough dehydrated food to keep an army fed for years, as well as an endless supply of water from a desalinizer that ran right into the ocean. 
He had wind turbines, solar panels, and backup generators with giant fuel tanks buried right under the courtyard. He had enough security measures to hold off the living dead forever. High walls, motion sensors, and weapons. Oh, the weapons. Yeah, our boss had really done his homework. But what he was most proud of was the fact that every room in this house was wired for a simultaneous webcast that went out all over the world 24-7. This was the real reason for having all his closest and best friends over. He didn't just want to ride out the storm in comfort and luxury. He wanted everyone to know he'd done it. This was the celebrity angle, his way of ensuring high-profile exposure. Not only did you have a webcam in almost every room, but there was all the usual press you'd find on the Oscars red carpet. I honestly never knew how big an industry entertainment journalism was. There had to be dozens of them there from all these magazines and TV shows. How you feeling? Heard that a lot. How you holding up? What do you think is going to happen? I swear I even heard someone ask, what are you wearing? (sighs) For me... The most surreal moment was standing in the kitchen with some of the staff and other bodyguards, all of us watching the news that was showing, guess what? Us. The cameras were literally in the other room, pointed at some of the stars as they sat on the couch watching another news channel. The feed was live from New York's Upper East Side. Dead were coming right up 3rd Avenue. People were taking them on hand-to-hand, hammers and pipes. The manager of Modell Sporting Goods was handing out all his baseball bats and shouting, Get him in the head! There's this one guy on rollerblades. He had a hockey stick in his hand, a big old meat cleaver bolted to the blade. He was doing an easy 30. That speed, he might have taken a neck or two. The camera saw the whole thing. The rotted arm that shot out of the sewer drain right in front of him. Poor guy backflipping into the air, coming down hard on his face, then being dragged, screaming by his ponytail into the drain. At that moment, the camera in our living room swung back to catch the reactions of the watching celebs. There were a few gasps, some honest. Some staged. I remember thinking I had less respect for the ones who tried to fake some sighs and cries and tears than I did for the little spoiled whore who called the rollerblading guy a dumbass. Hey, at least she was being honest. I remember standing next to this guy, Sergey, a miserable, sad-faced hulk and AMFer. His stories about growing up in Russia convinced me that not all third-world cesspools had to be tropical. It was when the camera was catching the reactions of the beautiful people that he mumbled something to himself in Russian. The only word I could make out was Romanovs. I was about to ask him what he meant when all we all heard the alarm go off. Something had triggered the pressure sensors we'd placed several miles around the wall. They were sensitive enough to detect just one zombie, and now they're going crazy. Our radios were squawking. Contact, contact, southwest corner. Shit, there's hundreds of them. It was a big damn house. Took me a few minutes to get my firing positions. I didn't understand why the lookout was so nervous. So what if there were a couple hundred? They'd never get over the wall. Then I heard him shout, They're running! Holy effing shit, they're fast! Fast zombies! Now that turned my gut. If they could run, they'd climb. If they could climb, maybe they could think. And if they could think, now I was scared. I remember our boss's friends were all raiding the armory, racing around like extras in an 80s action flick by the time I made the third floor guest room window. I flipped the safety off my weapon, flipped the guards off my sight. It was one of the newest gens, fusion of light, amplification, and thermal imaging. I didn't need the second part because G's gave off no body heat. So, when I saw the searing bright green signatures of several hundred runners, my throat tightened. Those weren't the living dead. There it is, I heard him shout. There's the house on the news. They were carrying ladders, guns, babies. 
couple of them had these heavy satchels strapped to their backs. They were booking it for the front gate, big tough steel that was supposed to stop a thousand ghouls. The explosion tore them right off their hinges, sent them flipping into the house like giant ninja stars. Fire! The brass was screaming into the radio. Knock them down! Kill them! Shoot, shoot, shoot! The attackers, for lack of better label, stampeded for the house. The courtyard is full of parked vehicles, sports cars and hummers, even a monster truck belonging to some NFL cat. Friggin' fireballs. All of them. Blowing over on their sides or just burning in place. This thick, oily smoke from their tires blinded and choking everyone. All you could hear was gunfire. Ours and theirs. And not just our own private security team. Any big shot, he wasn't crapping his pants. He either had it in his head to be a hero or felt he had to protect his rep in front of his peeps. A lot of them demanded their entourage protect them. Some did. These poor 20-year-old personal assistants who'd never fired a gun in their lives. They didn't last very long. But then, there were also the peons who turned and joined the attackers. I saw this one real queenie hairdresser stab an actress in the mouth with a letter opener. And ironically, I watched Mr. Get It Done try to wrestle a grenade away from the talent show guy before it went off in their hands. It was bedlam. Exactly what you thought the end of the world was supposed to look like. Part of the house was burning, blood everywhere, bodies or bits of them spewed all over that expensive stuff. I met the whore's rat dog as we were both heading for the back door. He looked at me. I looked at him. If it had been a conversation, probably would have gone like, What about your master? What about yours? F him. That was the attitude among a lot of the hired guns. The reason I hadn't fired a shot all night. We'd been paid to protect rich people from zombies. Not against other not-so-rich people who just wanted a safe place to hide. You could hear them shouting as they charged through the front door, not grab the booze or rape the bitch as it was put out the fire get the women and kids upstairs i stepped over mr political comedy guy on my way out to the beach he and this chick this leathery old blonde who i thought was supposed to be his political enemy were going at it like there was no tomorrow and hey maybe for them there wasn't i made it out to the sand found a surfboard probably worth more than the house i grew up in started paddling for the lights on the horizon there were a lot of boats on the water that night a lot of people getting out of dodge I hoped one of them might give me a ride as far as New York Harbor. Hopefully I could bribe him with a pair of diamond earrings. He finishes his shot of rum and signals for another. Sometimes I ask myself, why didn't they all just shut the hell up, you know? Not just my boss, but what about all those pampered parasites? They had all the means to stay way out of harm's way, so why didn't they use it? Go to Antarctica or Greenland or just stay where they were. But stay the hell out of the public eye. But then again, maybe they couldn't. Like a switch you just can't turn off. Maybe that's what made them who they were in the first place. (laughs) But what the hell do I know? The waiter arrives with another shot and Tishon flicks a silver rand coin to him. If you got it, flaunt it.
Ice City, Greenland. From the surface, all that is visible are the funnels, the massive, carefully sculpted wind catchers that continue to bring fresh, albeit cold, air to the 300-kilometer maze below. Few of the quarter million people who once inhabited this hand-carved marvel of engineering have remained. Some stay to encourage the small but growing tourist trade. Some are here as custodians, living on the pension that goes with UNESCO's renewed World Heritage Program. Some, like Ahmed Farinekian, formerly Major Farinekian of the Iranian Revolution Guards Corps Air Force, have nowhere else to go. India and Pakistan, like North and South Korea or NATO and the old Warsaw Pact, if two sides were going to use nuclear weapons against each other, it had to be India and Pakistan. Everyone knew it. Everyone expected it. And that's exactly why it didn't happen. Because the danger was so omnipresent. All the machinery had been put into place over the years to avoid it. The hotline between the two capitals was in place. Ambassadors were on a first-name basis. And generals, politicians, everyone involved in the process was trained to make sure the day they all feared never came. No one could have imagined. I certainly didn't. That events would unfold the way they did. The infection hadn't hit us as hard as some other countries. Our land was very mountainous. Transportation was difficult. Our population was relatively small given the size of our country, and when you consider that many of our cities could easily be isolated by a proportionately large military, it is not difficult to see how optimistic our leadership was. The problem was refugees. Millions of them from the east. Millions streaming across Baluchistan, throwing our plants into disarray. So many areas were already infected, great swarms slouching toward our city. Entire outposts buried under waves of ghouls. There was no way to close the border and at the same time deal with our own outbreaks. We demanded that the Pakistanis get control of their people. They assured us they were doing all they could. We knew they were lying. The majority of refugees came from India, just passing through Pakistan in an attempt to reach somewhere safe. Those in Islamabad were quite willing to let them go. Better to pass the problem along to another nation than have to deal with it themselves. Perhaps if we could have combined our forces, coordinated a joint operation at some appropriately defensible location. I know the plans were on the table. Pakistan's South Central Mountains, the Pab, the Karthar, the Central Brahi Range. We could have stopped any number of refugees or living dead. Our plan was refused. Some paranoid military attaché at their embassy told us outright that any foreign troops on their soil would be seen as a declaration of war. I don't know if their president ever saw our proposal. Our leaders never spoke to him directly. You see what I mean about India and Pakistan? We didn't have their relationship. The diplomatic machinery was not in place. For all we knew, this little shit-eating colonel informed his government that we were attempting to annex their western provinces. But what could we do? Every day, hundreds of thousands of people crossed our border. And of those, perhaps tens of thousands were infected. We had to take decisive action. We had to protect ourselves. There is a road that runs between our two countries. It is small by your standards, not even paved in most places, but it was the main southern artery in Baluchistan. To cut it off at just one place, the Ketch River Bridge, would have effectively sealed off 60% of all refugee traffic. I flew the mission myself at night with heavy escort. You didn't need image intensifiers. You could see the headlights from miles away. A long, thin, white trail in the darkness. You could see the headlights from miles away. A long, thin, white trail in the darkness. 
I could even see small arms flashes. The area was heavily infested. I targeted the bridge's center foundation, which would be the hardest part to repair. The bombs separated cleanly. They were high-explosive, conventional ordnance, just enough to do the job. American aircraft, from when we used to be your allies of convenience, used to destroy a bridge built with American aid for the same purpose. The irony was not lost on the high command. Personally, I could have cared less. As soon as I felt my phantom lighten, I hit my burners, waited for my observer plane's report, and prayed with all my might that the Pakistanis wouldn't retaliate. Of course, my prayers went unanswered. Three hours later, their garrisonite Kila Safid shot up our border station. I know now that our president and Ayatollah were willing to stand down. We'd gotten what we'd wanted. They'd gotten their revenge, tit for tat, let it go. But who was going to tell the other side? Their embassy in Tehran had been destroyed its... Their embassy in Tehran had destroyed its codes and radios. That son of a being colonel had shot himself rather than betray any state secrets. We had no hotline, no diplomatic channels. We didn't know how to contact the Pakistani leadership. We didn't even know if there was any leadership left. It was such a mess. Confusion turning to anger, anger turning on our neighbors. Every hour the conflict escalated. Border clashes, airstrikes, it happened so fast, just three days of conventional warfare, neither side having any clear objective, just panicked rage. He shrugs. We created a beast, a nuclear monster that neither side could tame. Tehran, Islamabad, Qom, Lahore, Bandar Abbas, Onara, Imam, Khomeini, Faishabad. No one knows how many died in the blasts. It would die when the radiation clouds began to spread over other countries, over India, Southeast Asia, the Pacific, over America. No one thought it could happen, not between us. For God's sake, they helped us build our nuclear program from the ground up. They supplied the materials, the technology, the third-party brokering with North Korean Russian renegades. We wouldn't have been a nuclear power if it hadn't been for our fraternal Muslim brothers. No one would have expected it. But then again, no one would have expected the dead to rise. Now would they? Only one could have foreseen this. And I don't believe in him anymore. <laughs>